Well, good morning again. You can take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17, our text this morning will be the text that was read to you in our scripture reading, and that is verses 1 through 9, although we will be focusing on a theme that this uh, narrative raises, and that is the theme of Jesus as King. I'm going to read to you verses 6 and 7 to just get the context for you again. Uh, and, and again, if you're, if you're new with us, we are going on a journey through the book of Acts, and we have actually reached the point in this journey that we have the end in view. Uh, because quite literally, this was one of the steps toward which the Apostle Paul had the city of Rome in mind. Jesus had set out the program, uh, both the geographic and the spiritual program, program for the book of Acts in verse 8 of chapter 1, when he said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses, and you're going to take the gospel, you're going to bear witness to me, uh, beginning in Jerusalem, and then the surrounding region, which was Judea, and then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, that is, the city of Caesar, the, the emperor at the time. So, verses 6 and 7, let me read these to you and get the context, and we'll jump in. And when they could not find them, that is, they being this mob, they couldn't find Paul and his associate Silas, when they could not find him, they dragged Jason, who was housing them, and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Okay, this, this accusation, uh, it, we're going to analyze this in just a moment, but this accusation uh, brings up a very important theme, as I said earlier, and that is the relationship between Jesus and Caesar. And it may seem like a small thing that Luke, who is the author, mentions Caesar, but if you'll remember, the book of Acts is actually a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And if you remember about something about the Gospel of Luke, if you were in a Christmas program or have participated in a Christmas program, you might remember Luke 2 is a very famous passage that starts out with Caesar sending out word that there was going to be a census or a tax, that all the world should be taxed. Remember that? So near the, Luke begins talking about Caesar, and Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, ends with Paul in the city of Caesar, that is Rome. And before that, God had spoken to the apostle Paul and says, now you are going to stand before Caesar. And the Caesar at the time was Nero. Okay, so this theme that it introduces is the theme that Jesus is king. Because the mob, what they were doing was to, to rile up the authorities, were saying, these people, they're saying that there's another king, and that is Jesus. So just by way of introduction, I want to see if we could unravel the confusion that exists here in this accusation and separate truth from error and see what it teaches us before we get into the body of the sermon. So, you know, we're going to fact check. You know how they, we, we like doing fact check. Whenever there's a public speaker, let's fact check them. In fact, I'm very aware that sometimes you are fact checking me while I'm preaching uh, because you have Google at your fi fingerprint, uh, fingertips. Well, let's fact check this accusation. First of all, the accusation that they turned the world upside down. <laughs> they said, these men who have turned the world upside, upside down have come to us. Well, did they turn the world upside down? Were they actually... 
um, promoting an, an, a, a complete revolution? I mean, were they saying away with government, uh, away with the, the present order of things? Were they seeking to subvert all of culture? Well, no, they weren't. So, but there is something about the world that they were turning upside down. They were saying that a man who had been crucified, that is someone who was on the bottom of the social structure, was the Lord. They were saying that suffering was the path to glory. They were saying that the king is one who gave his life for his subjects instead of taking from his subjects. I mean, that is turning things upside down, isn't it? So the answer to that is both, well, yes, is that true? Well, yes and no. Uh, what about the second accusation? He says that they are against the decrees of Caesar. Well, we know earlier that Paul was not against the Roman government per se. Why? Because when he was threatened uh, to, well, later on, when he was threatened to be beaten by Romans, he said, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen who has been uncondemned? No, Paul was willing to use his Roman citizenship and uphold the laws of the government so in that sense, no, that wasn't a true accusation. But on the other hand, if they meant by being against the decrees of Caesar, being against the way Caesar operated, then yes, the Caesar at that time uh, was Claudius, and he was an egocentric, power-hungry uh, person who the historians tell us loved especially to watch the gladiators uh, just wipe each other out there in the amphitheaters, in the, in the Colosseum, and uh, that he would slake his bloodthirsty appetite by viewing this carnage just along with the rest of the people. And so if by, if by saying they're against the decrees of Caesar, they meant they're against the ways of Caesar, yes. So the answer to that is both yes and no. And what about the final accusation? And that is this. So the, the, just to recap, the accusations where they turn the world upside down, we say, okay, yes and no. They're against the decrees of Caesar, well, yes and no. But what about this final one? We see this in verse uh, seven, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, what these accusers picked up on is that central to the Christian message was the news that there was a king and his name is Jesus. So that part is absolutely true. But the word another makes it seem as if Jesus was a king who was somehow a rival to or a competitor to Caesar. In that sense, that wasn't true. They were proclaiming not that Jesus was another king, not just that Jesus was a rival king, but that Jesus was the only king. Right? That's central to the Christian message. So we take these accusations, we fact check them, and we say, well, we actually have to peel truth from error because there's a great deal of confusion about what it means that Jesus is king. Let me ask you this this morning, my friends. Is there still confusion today about what it means that Jesus is king? I want to point out the relevance of this topic in two areas, on a political level and on a personal level. Okay, why is it so important for us to understand what it means that Jesus is king? Uh, let's go at the political level first. Before I moved to New Hampshire, I had no idea what a politically charged environment I was moving to. <laughs> I learned, after moving to New Hampshire, I realized, I learned, I think this is really cool, I tell people this, that New Hampshire is the most represented state, uh, the state with the most representatives per capita in the nation, by far. Compare the 400 seats in the House of Re Representatives with the next uh, biggest uh, representative house in the states, which is Pennsylvania, and I think there's 203 representatives. I mean, we are about half, about twice 
as, as many representatives. So that means that, that politics is a really big deal to New Hampshireites, right? That means that you probably know, uh, or there, pro there might be even state representatives here in, in this building, and you probably know one or know, one who, know someone who has been. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've, I've never lived in another state that has been more politically aware than New Hampshire. And so it stands to reason that you and I, as Christians, should want to know what it means that Jesus is king. All right? So the, the, the relevance politically on, on, on a political level with regard to our state, but also something else has happened since I moved to New Hampshire, and that is January of 2021, when uh, people stormed our capital, and inside... The, the, the Senate, the House of Senate, people are saying Christ is king. They're invoking, right in the Senate chamber, someone said, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. Now, there's a lot we can say about that right now. But the thing I want to point out is this illustrates the fact that there is massive and disturbing confusion about what it means that Jesus is king. So, was it relevant back then to know what it meant that Jesus is king? Absolutely. Is it relevant today that we understand what it means that Jesus is king? Absolutely. We better know what it means that Jesus is king. There, that's the political relevance, but I also want to take a, a, a step further, deeper. There's a, there's a personal relevance to this. Why, why do we need to understand what it means that Jesus is king? Because all of us are part of a social structure, and all of us have this ineradicable, uneraseable, uh, stubborn desire to be at the center of that social structure. To, we, we want to be kings, essentially. We want to rule. We want to be in charge. We, that's just an impulse that we, we, it's almost so universal we have to assign it to the, that what it means to be a human, in fact, is to want to be at the center of some social structure, to organize things around our interests, our advantage, our priorities. <clears throat> that that's, that's, seems to be so central to human nature. I could say that for myself. I could see that in the Bible. We can see it in, in our society. And we can see every clash that happens, whether it's between husbands and wives, between parents and children, whether it's a clash at home, in your house, or at your school, or at work, whenever there's some kind of clash, what you're seeing is a clash of kingdoms. You're seeing a clash of, of social structures in which people are trying to be at the center of their social structure to disadvantage others for their own advantage. All the way from, from, your, from your home and your work and your place of recreation and your place of education, all the way up to na all the way up to the conflict right now between Russia and Ukraine. These are clashes of kingdoms. This this issue is incredibly relevant because all of us find ourselves in social structures and all of us find within ourselves an impulse to be in charge. Now, so that's why this is so important to know what does it mean that Jesus is king. And my, the central point of this whole sermon that I'm going to do my best to, to, uh, to bring alive for you and to, to uh, drive home for all of us is that the best, in fact, the only way to understand what it means that Jesus is king is to see how Jesus reigns as king. Okay, so, so my central proposition, if you just want to boil it down is, it, to, to one statement, is this. In order to understand what it means that Jesus is king, you need to look 
to Jesus as king and see what kind of king he is. Uh, that, that's my main point. I'm going to develop this in three. There, it's not really a, an outline so much as it is three steps along a, a destination. So first of all, we need to understand what a kingdom is, and then we're going to see how Jesus reigns, and then we're going to see what that means for us. Okay, so these are just three st simple steps along the way to bringing alive for us or, or uh, driving home for us the central proposition. That is, th in order to understand what it means that Jesus is king, we need to look to Jesus as king, and we're first of all going to look at what's a kingdom. We need to, because politically that's kind of far removed from us. What, how did Jesus reign, and then what does that mean for us? So first of all, let's look at this idea of what a kingdom is. What is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is a social structure with, um, well, generically speaking, a kingdom is a social structure. You're like, social structure, this isn't sociology class, this is a sermon. Okay, let me explain. You know what a social structure is. Here's a social structure. Some kids in a playground. One kid is really smart and smart-alecky, and everybody likes him because he thinks he's funny. Another kid walks in, and the, the first kid says to the other kid, uh, you're a doofus, or uh, you're dumb, or starts calling him names. But the thing that he didn't really think about was that the second kid is twice his size, and so the second kid pops him in the nose and says, anybody else want to call me names? All right, that's a social structure. The whistle blows, the teacher comes in, that's a social structure, <laughs> okay? It's a social structure is the way humans organize themselves around authority. A kingdom is a social structure, and the thing that, di that distinguishes it from other social structures is this. A, ki a kingdom is a social structure with one person at the center. That's a kingdom. That's, that's how it's different. Now, there are, let me illustrate this. Well, actually, let me just say this. There are three operative principles in a kingdom. There is a prize, a problem, and a process. Right? So every kingdom or every social structure has a prize or a, tre a treasure. That is something your heart says will satisfy. All right? That's, that's whatever ultimate good, whatever you, can, whatever you think will satisfy. And then, then there's always the problem. There's always a thing that stands between me and that prize between me and that good. That's, that's the, the thing that I need to get past to get to that good. And then there's the process. That's how I get past that problem to get the prize. So every social structure, every kingdom operates that way. And, and I know this from experience. And, and the one thing I'll share, and I know my kids are going to be delighted that I'm sharing a story of when I was a kid, especially when I was a kid and got in trouble, because those are the most, those are the most fun stories to hear about your dad. But I remember this one time um, when I was wanting to build a fort in my backyard with a bunch of bricks. Now, both my brother and I were working on this project together. My plan was to get the bricks into the backyard. Well, his plan, first of all, was to get the bricks into the backyard by taking them carefully in a wagon down the steps. My plan was to get the bricks in the backyard by just dumping them off the driveway. And I was convinced that my plan was so much better, but he was convinced that his plan was so much better. Now, What's the solution when you have a difference like that? Well, my solution back then was just to whack my brother, okay? That was my process. The prize for me, and looking back, uh, analyzing the situation, the, the prize for me was not so much building the fort, it was building the fort my way. That was the prize. The fort would be built, and it would be built my way. The bricks would get down to the yard my way. 
The problem was my brother's way, and the process was pal. That's, that's what it looks like when there's a kingdom going on. But we see this also throughout the Bible. Say the Garden of Eden, for example. God created humans. God is the source of all life and beauty and truth, and he makes us this universe that's exploding with order and wonder and beauty. There are vast, trackless uh, swaths of, of intellectual disciplines and, and, and the physical sciences to explore, and you'll never get done exploring the, the amazing uh, splendor of what is out there, and God is the source of it all, and he puts human beings in the middle of a garden to cultivate it, and he puts within those human beings his own image. He puts in them his likeness, and that is so that they can rule and have dominion for his glory. And so what is the, what is the prize in this, in this situation? The prize is God himself. What, what could the problem possibly be? The only problem in such a scenario would be to turn away from such a prize. But the serpent came to Eve and insinuated to her a different prize, a different problem, and a different process. He began to cast a shadow upon the prize that was the true prize, that is God himself, and says, has God really said that you're not allowed to eat any tree of the garden, oh, God knows that in the day you eat thereof, you'll be like gods. What did Satan do? He began to weave an alternate universe, hoping to get, hoping to, um, get Eve's imagination to, to buy into that universe, a universe in which not God, but she was the ultimate prize, in which not sin, but God was the ultimate problem, and which the process was to stretch beyond God's boundaries to get the prize apart from God. That happens, and it's, it's, this is woven into the fabric of our very existence. You check your own heart. This is how we work. You check society. This is how it operates. This is a social structure that we have created for ourselves, kingdoms with ourselves at the very center. The tendency is to disadvantage others in order to advantage ourselves, to, to take from others for the good of ourselves. When the great church father, um, Augustine, was a teenager, some of you are familiar with, maybe even read uh, some of his great work, the, the Confessions or the City of God, uh, he tells a story in, his, in his, uh, his book, The Confessions. When he was a teenager, that he stole some pears from a neighbor's orchard at night with a bunch of his friends. And he said he came into this orchard, they sneaked into this orchard, and they just took those pear trees, and they shook the pear trees, and all the pears came down, and they scooped up those pears into this arms, their arms, and you know what they did with them? They, they ran over to another neighbor who had some pigs, and they dumped them into the pigsty. And years later, analyzing that, he said, why did I do that? It was so stupid. I wasn't hungry. I didn't eat the pears. I didn't need the pears. I wasn't trying to be nice to the pigs. He said, I did it just because it was wrong, just because it was bad, just because it was breaking something. You see how by putting ourselves at the center, by making, by making ourselves ultimate, the center of our social structure, we spiral into kind of insanity. Well, our tendency is to take the Lord's Prayer and twist it a little bit. Our tendency is to say, 
my kingdom come, my will be done. That's a kingdom. We see this all over. We see this within ourselves. Now, how, that's the first question. Remember I said we're going we're gonna to unfold this, the question of what does it mean that Jesus is a king? We need to understand something about kingdoms. But we also need to understand how Jesus reigned. When Jesus came to earth, and he walked upon this earth, he was at the height of, or near the height, rather, of one of the world's most powerful civilizations, uh, one of those world's powerful empires, the Roman Empire. And it was, the expectation was clear that he was coming as a king, that Jesus' arrival um, onto the scene there in Middle Eastern um, Judea was was seen to be as the coming of a king of some sort. And we see this in Jesus' titles. Uh, we see this in Jesus' deeds and in Jesus' teachings. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about what, what it seemed, what kind of king Jesus seemed to be. So first of all, consider the titles that he applied to himself and that other, others applied to him. Uh, first of all, there is the title Christ. And for those of you who may, may not be familiar with the, the title Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title that means anointed one. It's, this, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Meshiach, which means simply uh, comes from the verb to pour oil on someone's head. So Jesus, and, and what do they do um, to, who do they pour oil on? They poured oil on, on the heads of kings and prophets and priests. Oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it was just a way of saying this. Whatever this man is about to do, whether it be serving as a priest or serving as a prophet or ruling as a king, it's so important, it's such an important task that he needs God with him in order to do it rightly. And so to symbolize the God with himness, they would put oil on that man's head to say, this man is now being uh, filled with God's spirit in order to carry out his tasks. So when Jesus came and they, and they started and he was calling himself the Christ, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They were saying, you are the ultimate anointed one. In other words, it's not just oil that is on you. You are what the oil symbolized, and that is the king who is completely indwelt by God's spirit. So the word Christ, the title Christ pointed to Jesus' kingship, but also one of Jesus' favorite self-designations was this, son of man. And some of you reading the Gospels, you may be like, what in the world, what is that son of man thing uh, all about? The, the title, it, again, it's like Christ was a title, so also son of man is a title. Son of man is a title that goes back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision uh, of, a, of a being who comes from heaven with such glory and majesty and dominion. And, Dan, and Daniel says that all, everyone will serve this one. He is the king. So Christ has the idea of king. Son of man has the idea of king. And also the title son of God has the idea of king. The, the Israelite kings were considered to be God's son. Psalm 2, David writing, today you have said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. But, and so that was current not only in Jewish culture, but also in Roman culture. There is a coin that was... Um, literally, in currency at that time that had uh, Caesar's face on it, the pro a profile of his face. And, and, and inscribed on that, co uh, that, that coin was that he was the son of the divine Augustus. So he is the son of a god. So this idea of kings, uh, a son of God being a king, was common in, in Jewish history, is common in the 
Roman culture as well. So, yes, when Jesus comes, there's this anticipation that he, given his titles, that he is a king, Christ, son of man, son of God. But we also see his, his kingliness in his teaching. It, we, several months ago, we did, a sermon on the, we did a sermon series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in that sermon, Jesus is t- talking about what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And he's saying the kingdom of heaven is a place where the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are, are poor in spirit and they're meek and, and, and they're, they're humble. And he says, here are some of the standards of the kingdom of heaven. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. He says, here's, here's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who, who persecute you and forgive those who hate you. I mean, these are the standards of the kingdom of Jesus. And he presents himself as being at the very center of that social structure. He says near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. Many are going to say to me, address me as the king of that kingdom. So in Jesus' titles, we see that there's kingliness. In Jesus' teaching, we see this kingliness. But also in Jesus' deeds, any good king in the ancient world, as any good king should do, is a king who would protect his people, who, who would feed his people, and who would free his people. And we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus protecting people, Jesus feeding people, Jesus freeing people. People who are afflicted by the enemies of physical harm. Jesus would say to a, a, lay, a paralyzed man, take up your bed and walk. Jesus fed 5,000 people at the same time. Jesus would would, uh, cast demons out from people. I mean, these are kingly kind of activities. But here's the thing about the way Jesus reigned that began to cast a puzzle over all these things. When Jesus, as king, healed a person, he not only said, take up your bed and walk, but before that he said, your sins are forgiven you. And then after feeding 5,000 people, Jesus didn't say, now you're fed and full. Wouldn't you want me to be your king? You have so much to eat. No, he said, you're just going to get hungry again. Yes, you're full now, but wait 12 hours and your tummy's going to grumble again and you'll come back for more. He says, what you really need is not bread that perishes. You need the bread of life. And and Jesus did another miracle, and what I'm telling you is that Jesus did things that kings should do, but he did them in a way that caused people to think, wait, 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 yes, this is kingly, but this is like more than kingly. You remember the miracle in which Jesus walked on water? That's a pretty cool miracle. You know, Jesus did that not just as as a way to wow his disciples. He was showing them something. Because they were familiar with their Jewish scriptures that likened stormy waters to the rebellious raging of nations. And as Jesus walked across the stormy water, he was, that was one way of saying this, I am the Lord of all. Now, again, this puzzle begins to enter our minds about what kind of king Jesus is. 
He heals people, but he acts as if their sin is the greatest problem. He feeds people, but he acts as if a different kind of hunger is their greatest problem. And then he starts teaching some things that, confuse, that would confuse people who are expecting that he would be a king like Caesar. He says this, you know that the, the lords of the Gentiles, that is the typical way leadership uh, and authority is exercised, they lord it over those underneath them. They assert the authority. Jesus says, I'm not like that. Jesus said this, the son of man, remember the son of man? The son of man came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. What kind of king is that? And then he also started saying some other really unusual things that started to bother his disciples. He said, especially in the book of John, he says, my hour has not yet come. An hour is coming in which I'm going to be exalted and glorified. And if you're thinking an earthly king, you're thinking he's going to ascend the steps up to some sort of throne. But the more he talks about his hour coming and being glorified, the more he's talking about his death in Jerusalem. And, and this presents such a cognitive dissonance to his disciples that at one point when Jesus says, I want you to know that when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to, to his people who hate him, and he's going to suffer and die. Peter says, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan? the one who insinuated into Eve's mind that the greatest prize was not God and that the process was getting going outside God's boundaries to get goods from God? And the more Jesus starts talking about his glorification and the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more it becomes so perplexing in the minds of his followers, what kind of king is this? He stands before Pilate a representative of Caesar. And Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you said it. But my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were, my servants would fight. But now he said, my hour is coming. It's coming. What hour? What would be his enthronement? What would be his hour of exaltation? This didn't become clear until Jesus was hanging on a cross dying, the lowest point a human being could get. And at the cross, a Roman centurion, one of Caesar's men, says, truly this man was the son of God. You see, what Jesus was showing us by his reign is that the cross, that is the place where he died, was not, the, was not his defeat. That was his victory. And it is his victory. His hour of glory was his hanging upon a Roman cross, being crucified for the sins of people. What is Jesus showing us about what kind of king he is? He's saying, I am the center of a social structure. I am the very top of a kingdom in which true victory is not taking from people for the advantage of the king. It's giving of the king for the advantage of the people. And that runs counter to every kind of kingdom that we have, including the social structures that we create for ourselves, in which we seek to disadvantage other people for our advantage, to take from other people, to give to ourselves. And Jesus says, here is true victory. Here is the way the true King of kings and the Lord of lords reigns. He reigns by giving himself 
brothers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is life indeed. To see Jesus the King. This is why I said at the beginning, and this is my central proposition, to understand what it means that Jesus is King. See how he reigns. How does he reign? By dying for us. By giving himself for us. And this also makes it clear what the prize and the problem and the process in Jesus' mind was. What is the prize? Not world domination. Not everybody liking you. Not you getting that next promotion or that academic degree or the attention that you crave or the friends. What's the greatest prize? The greatest prize is God himself. And, and the greatest problem is when we think we're at the center of our social structures, grabbing a hold of whatever it is, power, pleasure. We put all kinds of things as our means, as our process to get that. And the, the, the process... The process, Jesus says, is this, giving, self-sacrificial giving for people's salvation. Now, don't you see the beauty of this? Isn't, th this might not have been what you expected when I said, okay, this theme is Jesus as king. Okay, this now means that Jesus is going to boss me around. You know how Jesus rules as king? He gives himself. But now that means your life must change. What does it mean now that Jesus is king? It means, it means everything must change for you. Everything. This is what was so striking to me about the, the way that Luke begins and ends his prequel and sequel, the, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. He begins the book of Acts, near the beginning of the book of Acts. Caesar Augustus sends out a decree that all the world should be taxed. And while Caesar Augustus thinks that this is the way of exerting dominance and, and his power over other people, little does he know that that decree is the very means by which the true king is born in precise fulfillment of the prophecies. And then it, the book of Acts ends with Paul the Apostle taking the message to Caesar in Rome itself and telling him, Caesar, you have a king. But this is a king who saves you from your worst enemy, and that is sin. Why? Because the prize is not more territory or more citizens, but God himself. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? There, there are two, ju there are just two points that I want to draw about the, out by this, by way of application. And, and really the application is endless because as I said, the fact that Jesus is king means everything changes. So we could start, we could talk about everything, but, but let me just limit it to two, two points of application that hopefully we'll be able to take with us and think more about. First, that Jesus is king shows us something about sin, and that is that sin is bondage. See, if Jesus' death for us, his giving of us, shows us that the greatest good 
is God, then it also shows us that whatever else we think is the greatest good is not our being in control, but our being controlled. This is the lie of, of sin. A lot of, a lot of people don't like to talk about sin. They think sin is um, a, a word that religious people use to uh, control other people or to make other people guilty. If we lose this concept of sin, we, we lose what it means to understand ourselves. And there's way more I could say about that, but a sin, we have to talk about sin. We have to talk about the solution to sin. But what Jesus as King shows us is that what we, th whenever you think that you're getting something apart from God that's good, that thing ends up controlling you. That's why sin is always like addiction. It's, it starts, and this is true of any kind of addiction, and, and it could be that you're addicted to something you don't even know you're addicted to, because that's part of the nature of an addiction. It starts out with some sort of crisis in your life and your attempt to solve that crisis by, or that distress uh, by something else. You know, when you're, you know you're addicted whenever the thing that, you, that is dominating you is the thing you go back to for freedom. But that's what sin does to us. It makes us think that by doing this thing, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex or overuse of social media or, over, or whatever it might be, it makes you think that that is your process to the prize when in fact it is that that is controlling you. And Jesus says, I've come to free you from that. I've come to free you from your bondage to sin because it's making you think you're at the center of your social structure, at the top of your kingdom, when in fact there could be only one kingdom and whatever else you attach yourself to, if it's not God, will crush and enslave you. Jesus as king shows us that sin is bondage. Whenever you lose that lose sight of the fact that God is your true treasure, your true prize, that the only one that can satisfy you, it will inevitably enslave you. Here's the second point of application. It shows us that obedience is true freedom. Obedience is true freedom. Um, we tend to think of obedience as drudgery, Oh my goodness, here it comes. Here are the rules. Here's what I have to do. In fact, God's, many people even think that God's very existence is what brings drudgery into life. Um, a, there, there's a philosopher, atheist philosopher named Thomas Nagel. Some of you may be familiar with him. And he writes something very striking about, about um, his, his mindset here. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally, hope I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there's no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And this, he says, this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. To Thomas Nagel and to all the Thomas Nagels in the world, and to the Thomas Nagels inside of us, I wish I could say this. Oh, but see what a King Jesus is. If only you knew 
that Jesus is actually breaking the bonds for you and setting you free for a new kind of obedience. If only you could see Jesus and the way he reigns, not by taking, but by giving, by giving of himself on the cross. If you want to know what it means that Jesus is king, Thomas Nagel, and all the Thomas Nagels within us, look to the cross. Look to Jesus. That's how you know what kind of king he is. That's how you know how he reigns. remember earlier I said um, in the Garden of Eden and talking about God's creation remember I said God made humans in his own image um, he's he stamped within us uh, his likeness um, one of the most interesting and um, dazzling actually encounters that Jesus had with people who were challenging his relationship with Caesar comes also in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Luke is the author of both the Gospel that bears his name and Acts. And this is Luke 20, verses 19 to 26. You don't need to turn there. I'm just giving it to you so you know, know the reference for later, perhaps. But this is when Jesus' opponents were trying to skewer him on the horns of a dilemma. On the one hand, they, they said this, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You remember this? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And, and because they knew this, they knew that the pro-Roman government people would say, oh, if he says it's not lawful, he's in big trouble. And the pro-independence people, the, the people that wanted to break free from Rome, said, oh, if he says we should pay taxes, he's in trouble. <laughs> so it seems as if, from their perspective, oh, this is going to be so good. We've got him. We're going to skewer him on the horns of this dilemma. Jesus, Jesus said this. Show me a denarius. Remember that Roman coin I said that had, an, had stamped uh, Caesar's profile on it? He said, show me a denarius. Remember that Roman? It says, he says, the son of a god here. He says, Who's, whose image is this? They said, Caesar's. He said, okay. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God's. What, what is God's? What is Jesus saying there? You remember I said that every one of us has God's image stamped upon us? Jesus is saying, you may owe money to Caesar. If so, give it to him. But you owe God yourself. You are his. You have within you a stamp of God within you, which means your desire to rule and reign your des Remember I said we all have this ineradicable, unerasable impulse to be kings. What Jesus is saying is actually, you are meant to reign because you are created in the image of God. But the only way to rule and reign in such a way that does not bring you self-destruction and taking advantage of other people is if you align yourself with the, the true and only king. That's why the Bible begins in Genesis 1.26 by saying God created human beings, men and women, men and women in the image of God so that they might have dominion like vice regents, like sub-kings and queens so that they can rule for God's glory. In the interlude is the spiraling out of control as a result of sin. And at the very end, the Bible is bookended by this statement. And they, that is those who have put their trust in Jesus as king, shall reign with him. My friends, we are meant to reign. We are meant to rule, but under the kingship of Jesus Christ, who is the king of all. No wonder that was a message that turned the world upside down. 
No wonder that created such a stir, or rather, shall we say, turn the world right side up. Would you bow your heads? Take a moment to think about this. The accusation that was leveled against the followers of Jesus, they are saying that there is another king, Jesus. Yes, there is, but he's not just another king. He is the only king. While your heads are bowed and your eyes closed, um, take this time, take this moment. You may have many questions about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to have Jesus as king. And if you have questions about that, then please talk to, talk to me or one of the other pastors or, or someone who brought you or email us or however you can, but, but don't leave those questions unanswered. But know this, the only way for you to be saved is to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. And my, my friends who are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, has some kind of sin gotten a stranglehold in your life? You think that you're in charge, but actually you've discovered it's actually, I'm not the king. How have you been ruling? How have you been operating your social structure? Is King Jesus at the center? We're going to sing a song in just a moment that says this, there is a higher throne. And as we sing this, I think the, the applications of this message that Jesus is king will be even multiplied as we see that Jesus as king gives us comfort and hope and suffering and joy and sorrow and all, other, all the other benefits that such a good king as Jesus dis dispenses. But would you take this time to pray and confess whatever you need to confess to King Jesus? Our Father, through your, your spirit and in light of your word, would you continue to work in our hearts, do in us uh, such a work that we couldn't explain in any other way except that you are doing it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jake, would you come and lead?